0: morning we're going to start a new section in our study through Romans called Sovereignty. I titled this Sovereignty because in chapters 9 through 11 we're going to see the sovereignty of God and His dealing with the nation of Israel. And so these three uh, chapters, they answer some important questions that would have arisen, especially among Jews, as we've looked at the first eight chapters of Romans, really uh, concerning the problem associated with the condition of Israel. At the point of the writing of this letter, and sadly all the way to now, uh, for the most part, the nation of Israel had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. He came to die for their sin as their Messiah, their Savior, and for most of them, they have rejected Him, they have not accepted Him, and and as we've looked through Romans, Paul's been dealing with this concept that they had of, oh no, we're right with God because, of our heritage. You know, we're descendants of Abraham or we're right with God because we have the law or we're right with God because of the works that we do. And so they had all sorts of reasons why they felt like they were saved and the relationship with God was good. And Paul's been making very clear. No, the only way that you can be saved and have a true relationship with God is by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah who came to sacrifice himself for your sins. But for the most part, the nation of Israel has not accepted that Truth. Now, someone looking at the state of Israel, their rejection of Jesus, the fact that God had chosen them and had blessed them, but now He has, you know, really poured out His Spirit upon Gentiles, and for the most part, the majority of people who are getting saved are Gentiles and not Jews. There would be several questions that would come to mind. The most significant one is, is God done with Israel? You know, considering all that's been happening and the rejection of him and now God is seeming to just move through Gentiles and save Gentiles, is is he done? with the nation of Israel. What does it mean that Israel has missed its Messiah? What does this say about God? What does this tell us about Israel? And, and for those who are even Gentiles, what does this say about our position in our relationship with God? Because chapter 8 ended with, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But you might ask, what about the Jews? Are they separated from God's love? They were God's chosen people, and it seems like you know there's a big issue here with them and their relationship with God. And so these kind of thoughts would come to mind, ultimately coming back to this main question, is God done with the nation of Israel? And so in chapters 9 through 11, Paul's going to make very clear, no, God is not done with the nation of Israel. He still has a very important plan for them. In these three chapters, Paul's going to deal with three main things concerning the nation of Israel. In chapter 9, Paul's going to deal with Israel's past election. In chapter 10, Paul's going to deal with Israel's present rejection of God. And in chapter 11, Paul's going to deal with Israel's future reception. So in dealing with the question, you know, is God done with the nation of Israel because they have rejected Jesus, Paul's going to point to the past first. Hey, let me show you what God has done in the past concerning the nation of Israel, and then let's deal with the present rejection that the nation of Israel has towards Jesus, but let me show you the future, what God is going to do to ultimately bring the nation of Israel to a place where they do accept Jesus as their Messiah. And so it's a a great that section of verses. Really, I think the best way to study this is to get all three of these chapters together. I encourage you to read chapters 10 and 11. We're going to look at chapter 9 this morning, but if all you look at is chapter 9, you miss kind of the whole thought of what Paul is trying to deal with. We start with the election of God, and then we see the choice uh, to reject Jesus in chapter 10 with the Israelites, but then what God's going to do to draw them to himself in the future, and, and all of them come together to paint this wonderful picture. Picture of what God is doing and how He's not done with the nation of Israel. But also, it shows God's faithfulness in how He saves. And, and, and Paul's wanting to uh, use Israel as an illustration of that important truth. So this morning we're going to look at chapter 9 where Paul reveals to us Israel's uh, past election by God. In this chapter, we're going to clearly see the sovereignty of God displayed for us. And before we get into this, I want to just... Uh, define the sovereignty of God for you because it's something that is so important for us to understand. It's something that the Scriptures uh, clearly reveal and speak about. Norman Geisler defines sovereignty uh, in this way. Sovereignty is God's control over His creation, dealing with His governance over it. Sovereignty is God's rule over all reality. So the sovereignty of God means that He has total control over the past, over the present, And over the future. Nothing happens that's out of his knowledge. And nothing happens that is out of his control. So all things are either caused by him or allowed by him to happen. So when I mention God's sovereignty, I'm speaking about his control. I'm speaking about his rule, his knowledge over all creation. And the fact that he has power that he has wisdom, and that he has complete authority over all creation to do with his creation as he chooses. Now the fact that God's sovereignty is clearly taught through scripture should, you know, help us realize this is important, but uh how God chooses to exercise that, you know, uh sovereignty, that's the where where a lot of Christians kind of debate as to how that works, but you know, for the most part the reality of his sovereignty is not something that is questioned. But here in chapters 9 through 11, God's going to reveal how he chooses to exercise his sovereignty with the nation of Israel. And as we see how he chooses to exercise his sovereignty with Israel, it gives us a picture of just how God chooses to exercise his sovereignty in general. And so as we look at these three chapters, we're going to see the ways in which God has chosen to exercise his sovereign control and rule over people. And hopefully it will help us to understand God's sovereignty more. It's not something that we should be afraid of or shy from. I think it's one of the most encouraging things (laughs) excuse me, that we see about God in Scripture. Now, before Paul jumps into this whole section, because really 9, 10, and 11 are all kind of together, uh, we're just starting with chapter 9, but he wants the nation of Israel to understand something very important about his feelings towards them. Because remember, you know, this is a group that hated Paul, that persecuted Paul, that beat Paul, that stoned Paul, and so he's gonna share things about the nation of Israel that some Israelites might just say, well, you just have it in for us, Paul. You just don't like us. You know, we haven't treated you well, and now you just wanna, you know, talk about God blessing the Gentiles and you know now so he wants them to realize hey before I share anything about the nation of Israel let me share with you how I feel about the nation of Israel and it's quite powerful what Paul shares here about his heart towards them in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 9 says this I tell the truth in Christ I am not lying My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Paul here starts by saying something that maybe seems a little odd. He says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul knows I'm about to share something with you guys that you know you might not believe. I'm going to share how deep of love I have for you. And maybe you think, oh, he's exaggerating. That's not really true. He's lying. And Paul starts off saying, hey, I want to make sure before I say the next thing I'm going to say, that you know I'm being completely truthful. I'm not exaggerating this. This is my heart towards you. This is how I feel about you. So please believe me when... I say this. Paul wants them to know hey, I have an immense love for the nation of Israel. Notice what he says in verses 2 through 4. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Paul had a great love for the Israelites. He had a huge desire to see each and every one of them saved for them to put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And the fact that for the most part the nation of Israel has rejected Jesus as their Messiah, it has brought him great sorrow and great grief because his heart is, I want you to be saved and you're rejecting the way of salvation and you're thinking salvation comes through all this other stuff and you've missed it and he's heartbroken Because of it. But notice he goes on to say, I could wish that I myself were cursed from Christ for my brethren. Now notice Paul says, I could wish this were true because he realizes this is not the way in which God has designed it. This is not the way it works. He's not, you know, sharing some weird new doctrine. He's just trying to help them see the lengths in which he would go to see them saved. So he's not saying that this is possible. He's just saying, I wish it was. I wish I could do this. For you guys, because I love you so much. I wish I could be accursed for Christ if that would cause you brethren, you Israelites, to come to salvation. Now I want you to recognize what he's saying here. The Greek word here translated accursed comes from the Greek word anathema. It means to be excommunicated, separated from God, a curse, no hope of redemption. When we speak of those who are accursed, we're speaking of those who are going to be cursed for all eternity, damned by God in hell. This is what Paul is saying here. I am willing, if it was possible, I wish that I could be accursed for all eternity if my brethren, the Israelites, would come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and be saved for all eternity. I mean, what he's sharing here is just quite amazing that I'm willing, I would be willing to sacrifice all that I have been given in Christ and receive what you guys are going to receive, eternal damnation, so that you could have all that I have in Christ. If I could make that exchange with you, I love you enough that I would do that because my heart desires that you would come to a knowledge of Jesus and be saved. I mean, that is some serious love. I want you to think for a moment, is there anyone, and honestly to yourself, that you would say, you know what? I would be willing to go to hell for eternity if it meant they could go to heaven for eternity. Is there someone in your life, is there anyone that you love enough that you would say, you know what, I'm so desperate for their salvation that I'd be willing to be damned for eternity so that they're not. Now I want you to think of something else. Those that Paul loves, those that Paul says, this is my heart towards you, they do not love him back. This is a group that hates Paul for the most part. So if you're thinking, yeah, maybe I'd be willing to go to hell for my child. Maybe I'd be willing to go to hell for my spouse. Maybe I'd be willing to do it for my best friend. But would you be willing to do it for someone who hated you, for someone who despised you, for someone who actually wanted to kill you? Because that is what Paul dealt with with the Jews. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four 24 and 25, we're told... From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. And once I was stoned. Now I want you to think about this. If someone took a whip and beat you 39 times with that whip, would that be a person that you would say, hey, yeah, I want to be a curse for you. I want to trade hell and heaven between us two. Well, that happened five different times with Paul. From who? The Jews. Okay, they also beat him with rods. So would you do that for someone who did that? And probably the worst thing of all is they took Paul outside the city and they threw stones at him until they thought he died. They tried to kill him. Would this be a group that you would say, yes, this is the group that I want to die for, that I would trade eternity with. That's the heart that Paul has for the Jews. It's an amazing love that he has for them. And you know what? It's a great love because when Jesus speaks about loving others, he gives us a pretty important challenge that we see Paul fulfilling in his love for the Jews. Luke 6.32, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Jesus is saying, you know what? The true test of love is not just loving people who love you back. Whoopie doo. Sinners do that. Most people will love those who love them back. Will you love those who are unlovable? Will you love those who don't love you back? Will you love those who persecute you want you dead, who do hurtful things and say hurtful things to you? That's the real test of love. Will you love your enemy? And that is the challenge that Jesus gives to us as followers of Christ, that take your love from just loving those who love you back to doing what God does and loving the unlovable, loving your enemy, loving those who do horrible things to you. And this is what we see in the life of Paul. He was willing to do this, and he follows Jesus' perfect example of willing to truly say, I will give up the throne and come to earth, and I will sacrifice myself, and I will take your sin upon myself so that you truly can have eternity in heaven. God demonstrated the clear love that Paul now is saying is in my heart for the Jews. And if I'm honest, and I maybe if you're honest as well, you might say, maybe there's nobody that I could truly say I'm willing to sacrifice my eternity for because of that love. But you know, God wants to build within us, like he did Paul, his love for the lost. That we would really be you know, sorrowful and broken over the reality of where people are going and that truly we could say, oh, I wish if it was somehow possible, I could trade what I have for them so that they could have the wonderful truth of what Jesus has done. But the good thing for us, we don't have to trade it. We can say, hey, you can join me. We can all go together. We can all have eternity in heaven, but having that amazing love, you know, that's not something natural in us. That's not something that we have. We don't look at the lost naturally and just say, man, I really want to you know, trade my eternity so that you can have eternity in heaven. It's something that God has to work in us, but it's His heart. And the more you start to love the lost, the more you have the love that God has because that is what He has clearly displayed as He came and sacrificed Himself for us. And so Paul starts, hey, I want you to know my love for you. But now he continues with, And also I want to remind you of the love that God has had for you, especially in the way in which God has blessed you. And so now Paul's going to remind them of many blessings that they've had from God, and the most important is the last blessing, the one that they've rejected. Verse 4, "...who are all Israelites, whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So Paul here lists eight things that God has blessed Israel with. And he wants to remind them of the wonderful blessing that they had. First is the adoption. They had the privilege of being adopted as God's chosen people, which guess what? No other nation had that privilege. It was to them and to them alone. And what a wonderful privilege it was. Second, the glory. While they got to experience the glory of God in ways that no one else did, the Old Testament speaks of that Shekinah glory that was there in the tabernacle and there in the temple and that led them through the wilderness. It was something that they experienced as a nation that was a, a privilege to them. Third, the covenants. God made many covenants with the nation of Israel. It started with Abraham. They had another covenant with Moses and the law. There was the Davidic covenant with David. But the most important covenant of all was the covenant, the new covenant, that God made with them through Jesus Christ. Fourth, the law. As we've looked at, the law is a wonderful thing. It's God's perfect standard. And He entrusted it with the nation of Israel. He gave it to them to guide them. And it show them His standard. And this was a wonderful privilege that they had. Fifth, the service. They got to serve God. They had the priest and the sacrificial system, and what a wonderful privilege if they had the temple, and they had this, you know, the high priest once a year actually got to go into the Holy of Holies. It was the Jews who had this wonderful opportunity to have the worship service of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Six, the promises. You know, the nation of Israel, as you look through Scripture, has many promises of God just for them. It was a wonderful privilege that God said, hey, I promise you this, and this, and this, and this. And, you know, that He didn't promise to other nations. Seventh, the fathers. You know, as you look through the Old Testament, you see there were so many great fathers of faith for the nation of Israel, starting with Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses, and David, and the list goes on and on of these great men that God had, you know, given as examples to the nation of Israel. Now, because of these first seven blessings, these are the blessings that you know those who were Jewish would hold on to and say, this is why I'm right with God. I'm a descendant of Abraham. You know, I have the covenants. I have the promises. I have the law. I have all these things. That's what makes me right with God. That's why I'm good with God. That's why I don't have anything to worry about in my relationship with God. But the most important thing of all is the final blessing the eighth thing that Paul shares, which is the Christ. That term Christ is the Greek term for the Old Testament term of Messiah. Speaking of Jesus the Messiah, the one who you've been waiting for, the one who came to save you, the one that you still think is coming because you missed the one who actually did come, He's the one you've rejected. The Messiah has come. He's come to save you. And of all these things that you look at and you say, oh, this is so great, we have the law. Well, guess what? It was pointing to Jesus. All these things that you have were pointing to Jesus and you missed the most important blessing of all. That's why Paul so grieved. Because the most wonderful, the most important thing the nation of Israel ever was given, they have rejected. Now since for the most part the Israelites have rejected their Messiah, it brings up an important question. Does this mean that God's promises and God's word didn't come through for the Israelites? When you look at the promises, you look at what he said in his word, and you look at the nation of Israel presently, does this mean that God's word hasn't come through? Well, Paul is going to answer that question um, in several different ways in the next several verses starting in verse 6, says this, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are of the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not children of God, but the children of promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. So Paul starts off by saying, hey, it's not that the word of God has taken no effect. You know, Paul's saying, you know, there are some who I'm sure are thinking right now, asking the question right now, God's word didn't come through for the nation of Israel. He didn't fulfill his promise for them because they missed the Messiah. And it seems like they're kind of cursed now by God. If that's the case, Paul, how do I know that God will come through for me? So Paul answers this question making it clear. It's not that the Word of God has taken no effect. The people who are claiming that, Paul wants them to realize, hey, no, no, wait a second. God's Word has taken effect. You've just made some conclusions that are incorrect. And your conclusions are leading you to saying, oh, wait a second, maybe God's Word hasn't taken effect. And Paul's saying, no, no, Let me share some things with you to help you see why that's not the case. The first thing he says is, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. One of the names of Israel, the meaning is to be governed by God. And so what Paul is saying is not all who say, hey, we're Israelites are really Israel governed by God. Not everyone who's claiming to be Israelites are actually really governed by God. That's what a true Israelite should be. Someone who says, my life is governed by God, not just I have a heritage that goes back to Abraham. That's not what God wanted. And, you know, kind of like we have the same thing with the word Christian. The word Christian is to be Christ-like. That's what the word means. And we got plenty of people here in the South that say, oh, I'm a Christian, but their life is anything but Christ-like. So just because you call yourself a Christian doesn't mean you're Christ-like, doesn't mean you actually are, doesn't mean you're actually living it. And the same thing with these Israelites. Just because you have the, the title doesn't mean you're actually governed by God. And so Paul wants them to understand that reality. There's a lot of guys that aren't truly governed by God, and so God's word has taken effect. That's why they're the ones who aren't accepting Christ. Now, the early church was full of people that were governed by God. Paul was one of them, Peter another. You know, we have many people as pillars of the early church that truly knew God, were governed by God, and they were part of that group. But for the most part, Israel wasn't because they had rejected Jesus as their Messiah. Paul goes on to say, Nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. Not all the descendants of Abraham are children of God. The Israelites thought, hey, we're right with God because I can trace my heritage to Abraham. And that's all that matters. I'm connected to Abraham, so I'm good with God. And so Paul says, okay, if you think that just having a connection to Abraham makes you a child of God, let me remind you of some children of Abraham so you can see that's not actually true. He brings up two children that Abraham had, Isaac and Ishmael. In Isaac, your seed shall be called, that is, those who are of the children of the flesh. These are not children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. This is something that we recently looked at on Thursday nights as we've been going through the book of Genesis. We see that, you know, A long time passed, as God said, I promise Abraham and Sarah a son. And they decide, you know what, maybe we need to help God out. And so here's the plan. Instead of, you know, God doing a miracle and enabling us to have our own child, Abraham, you go to my handmaiden, Hagar, sleep with her, and you can have a baby through her. And they do. And they have Ishmael, the son of the flesh, not the son of the promise. The one that they worked in their own flesh to accomplish, and God rejected Ishmael. He actually says, Isaac, your only son, Isaac, you know, God never received Ishmael, the son of the flesh, even though he was Abraham's son. He only received the son of the promise that God provided miraculously through Abraham and Sarah. And so Abraham's bringing up this reality, the covenant that God made, the seed that comes through that covenant, which ultimately will come to the Messiah. It did not go through Ishmael. It came only through Isaac and so we, for those of you who are saying hey I'm connected to Abraham that makes me a child of God he's saying Ishmael was connected to Abraham that didn't make him a child of God he was a child of the flesh he was rejected God did not choose him so you can be in that same category don't think just because you know I'm a descendant of Abraham I'm now good with God And so he brings this up to help them see that their mindset and what they were depending on wasn't true but now he's going to use another Old Testament example because some might think, well, yeah, I understand one was an illegitimate son and one was a legitimate son. Surely God's going to reject the illegitimate son. So yeah, we're not illegitimate. I mean, I'm a descendant of Isaac, so I'm good. Well, it's so fine. If you're going to reject that one, let me give you another example of a descendants of Abraham that are both legitimate sons and neither illegitimate. So you can understand my point. Verse 10 through 13. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So now it says, hey, I got another analogy, got another illustration, got two more kids. You might say, okay, well, fine, Ishmael was illegitimate, but guess what? Jacob and Esau are legitimate children. There's no illegitimacy of them. They're twins. And notice before they're even born, before they do anything good or anything bad, before they have any works that could say, well, God chose Jacob because he did more works than Esau, or God chose whatever. Before all of that, while they're still in the womb, God makes a sovereign choice to say, Jacob, I have chosen, and Esau, I have chosen not. That's why it says in verse 11 that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works but of him who calls. Remember another problem that the Israelites had was hey it's not just my heritage it's what I do and that's why God has chosen me that's why God is I'm good with him because of my works and then Paul once again saying well wait a second here when God chose Jacob had nothing to do with his works When God rejected Esau, it wasn't about the works. It was totally about God's sovereign choice to choose as He pleases. So Paul wants the Israelites to see that through your history, God has made choices concerning you as a nation. And those choices weren't based on some work that you did. Abraham didn't do some work that ultimately caused God to choose him. Isaac didn't do it. Jacob didn't do it. God just made a choice to choose them based on his own reasons and his own wisdom. Now, as we looked at in the book of Genesis, what God ultimately chose for Jacob was to inherit the wonderful promise that he gave to Abraham and Isaac, the promise that the land, the promise of a great nation, but most importantly, the promise that through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Ultimately, the promised covenant of salvation through Christ. He said, I give that to Jacob. I promise to give it to him and I reject Esau, and I will not give it to him. Now, in verse 13, Paul quotes Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where it says, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. Now, when people hear this, they often struggle with this. Well, wait a second. God hated Esau. This is a problem for me. I don't like that. Now, I want to share some things with you about God hating Esau. The Greek word here that Paul uses translated hated has both a strong and a soft definition. The strong definition is to detest someone. The soft definition is to love them less. Now, when you look at Greek words, and you'll find if you you know use a Strong's concordance as you're studying through the Bible, that y- you will have a certain word that it's like, well, wait a second, you know, this has kind of several meanings within it. So, which one do I choose? Well, you ultimately have to choose based on the context of you know the verses that you're looking at. And so, there's there's different scholars. Some who say I feel like the softer side of love, less, should be there, and some who say the stronger side of detest should be there. Uh, and so, let's start first start with the mindset of God saying, Esau, I have hated, meaning I have loved him less. This is something that Jesus does as well when he uses the same Greek word hate in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, it says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is not using the strong sense of this word hate of detest. He's not saying you have to detest your parents, you have to detest your family, and if you don't detest everybody, even yourself, you can't be my disciple. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not telling us to detest people. What he's saying is you have to love everyone less than me. If you truly want to follow me, you can't love your spouse more than me. You can't love your children more than me. You can't love your parents more than me. You have to love everyone less than me, He's using the soft term of this Greek word translated hate. I believe that is what is going on here in Romans as well. That Paul is saying, hey, Jacob God loved and Esau he ultimately loved less because he was not willing to choose Esau to have the covenant of salvation to go through him. Now I want you to think about as we've been studying through Genesis, if you thought, well, God detests Esau, what did he do for Esau? Remember, God greatly blesses Esau with a lot of you know wealth, and he gives him 12 sons that all become princes. And it's clear, it was God's blessing that made all of this happen. So it's not like it's saying, well, God loved Jacob, and he blessed him, and he detested Esau, and he gave him nothing. Well, what we actually see is God gave the inheritance to the ultimate covenant blessing to Jacob, and rejects Esau for having it, but he still blesses Esau's life. He still gives him lots of stuff and lots of children, so it's not that he detested him in that sense. Now, for the scholars who would say, you know what, it's the strong word here, that God truly did detest Esau. You know what, I have no issue with that. I don't have a problem with God detesting Esau, and here's why. God detests sin, and Esau was a horrible sinner. What Esau deserves from God, what you and I deserve from God, is God detesting us. I don't have a problem at all with God looking down and saying, I detest that individual and the lifestyle that they live. That goes straight with the fact that God is holy and perfect. I have no issue with that. Actually, the biggest problem with this verse that I struggle with is the fact that God says, I love Jacob. Jacob is a deceiving, lying swindler. He's just as bad as his brother. The fact that God loves him is more what baffles me than that God would detest sinful Esau. I would think, well, detest them both. But yet God says, no, I'm going to choose to show love in a way that Jacob is so undeserving of. I'm going to give him this covenant and these blessings, and I'm going to fulfill this for him, and I'm going to do this in his life. And that's really the thing that kind of baffles me of God's choice to show love in a way that Jacob doesn't deserve. I'm not baffled at all that God says, I'm going to give Esau what he does deserve. And actually, he doesn't really fully give him that. He blesses him. Esau doesn't deserve any of the blessing. He didn't deserve the covenant. And God says, I'm not going to give you the covenant. I don't have a problem with that, even if he truly did detest him. So whether you define it in its soft sense or its strong sense, we shouldn't be like, oh my goodness, I can't handle the fact that this passage tells me this about God. Because either way, God is still holy and just And doing either of these things. Now, the point that Paul is making here is that God is sovereign in his choice. He is able to make a choice in choosing to choose uh, Jacob over Esau, just like he chose um, Isaac over Ishmael. So God does this. Now, for Jews who thought they were accepted by God, they were part of the God's covenant of salvation just because they were descendants of Abraham, Paul reminds them of Esau. (laughs) Wait a second. You know, He lost it. God didn't give it to him. So don't think that that's the only reason, the only way that you get right with God. Now the question that people might be thinking, and maybe you're thinking of it now, does God's choosing one person over another make God unrighteous? I mean, how could God do that? I mean, that just seems unfair to me. Well, Paul's going to deal with that in the next several verses. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For we have said to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. So Paul starts off saying, well, what shall we say to this? Is God unjust? For the person who thinks, hey, God choosing to love one person or bless one person over another person, you know, does that make God an unjust God? And Paul's quick answer is certainly not. And then he goes to expound upon why that isn't the case. And he reminds us of something that God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now, a lot of people read this and say, well, wait a second. It's not fair that God would have mercy on one person and not show the same mercy to another person. Now, before we make a claim like that, let's make sure that we define what mercy is. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. So is God unjust when he gives one person mercy? He doesn't give them what they deserve. And then he gives the next person what they do deserve. They deserve it. So how is he unjust for giving them? what they deserve. Just because he gives one person what they don't deserve doesn't make him unjust for giving another person what they do deserve. Let me give you an example that will hopefully help you answer this question. Let's say that Jenny was driving our van and I'm driving our truck and we're heading down the 45 to Galveston and we're late for something. We're going 90 and a 60 and there's a police officer there and he pulls us both over for speeding. We've broken the law. We're 30 miles an hour over the speed limit And the officer first comes to the van where Jenny and Scarlett and Eden are there. And Jenny's super sweet to him. And my girls are smiling at him. And, you know, he makes him have a good day and says, you know what? I'm going to let you go with a warning. I'm going to show you mercy. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. You definitely deserve a speeding ticket. You were going 30 miles an hour over. But you know what? I'm going to let you go with a warning. Now you can leave. But before Jenny leaves, she texts me, oh, praise the Lord, he let me go with a warning while he's now walking to my truck. And I'm thinking, wonderful, I'm going to get let off with a warning as well. And he says, you know, you were going 30 miles an hour over the beam limit. Yep. And I'm thinking, but it's a warning. And he starts writing me a ticket. Now I can think, well, wait a second, you just let my wife off with a warning. It's not fair that you would now write me a ticket. How can you show her mercy and not me? Well, why is it not fair that I give you a ticket for breaking the law? You deserve a ticket, and I'm giving you a ticket. The fact that I have discretion to give mercy to whom I want doesn't make me unjust for actually enforcing the law on lawbreakers like yourself. And so when we come to God and we say, well, wait a second, God, it's not fair. Ultimately, what we're saying is, God, I deserve mercy. That's the only reason we would claim it's not fair. Well, I deserve it. If you've given it to someone else, then you should have to give it to me. I should deserve it. Well, that goes against what mercy is. It's not getting what you deserve. So if I deserve it, it's no longer mercy. And so I can't make this claim of, wait a second, God, you're unjust. That's not right for you to do that. You know, the only way that officer would be unjust is if he gave a ticket to Jenny and I, and we were driving under the speed limit, and he gave us a ticket for not breaking the law. That would be unjust, but he's completely just to give me a ticket for breaking the law, just like God is completely just for punishing sinful people for doing sinful things. And for saying, you know what, but I'm going to choose to have mercy on you. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve, but I'm going to give you what you do deserve. That There's no injustice in that, in God doing that. He is completely righteous and just and holy if he chooses to do that. Jesus spoke of this right of God in the parable of the landowner in Matthew chapter 20. He brings up basically the same thing, saying, okay, there's a landowner. He goes out and says, anybody who will work a day for me, I'll give you a denarius at the end of the day. And so at the first hour, he gets this crew of guys, and they start working. And throughout the day, he keeps every hour bringing in more people. And at the end of the day, he starts with the people who came the very last hour to work, and he gives them a denarius. (laughs) And the guys who started at the very beginning are thinking, oh, wow. We're going to get way more. I mean, if he gave these guys who only worked an hour a denarius, think of how much we're going to get for working the whole day. And they get up to the front of the line, and the landowner gives them a denarius. And they say, this isn't fair. And he says, why isn't this fair? Did we not agree that you would work all day for a denarius? Am I not doing what I said I would do for you? Well, yeah, but, but you gave that guy who only worked for an hour a denarius. That's not fair that you wouldn't give us more since we work longer. Well, wait a second, isn't it my money? Can't I choose to give him more? And can I choose to do for you what I agreed to do with you? Well, why am I unfair in doing that? See, this mindset that, oh, well, because someone else has been given mercy, now all of a sudden I deserve it. No, we don't. And this is what Paul is wanting us to grasp. Paul goes on to say in verse 16, So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. God's mercy is not given to us because of what we wish him to do, him who wills. Oh, I, I will God to do this. No, that's not why he gives it. And it's not because of what we actually do, him who runs. Oh, I'm going to get it because I've done this and this. No, the reason God shows mercy is simply out of his desire to show mercy. He does it as he pleases, not because of our influence, or of our works. He is sovereign and he makes choices based on his own desires. We oftentimes think God should show me mercy because of the good things I have done for him. But Paul wants to make very clear, no, that's not the reason. And that's where so many in the nation of Israel are at. Hey, God's going to show me mercy because look at me, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm doing that for him. And he's like, that's not the ultimate reason and motivation that God uses for determining how he shows mercy. So Paul wants the Israelites to see God's sovereign ability to choose demonstrated throughout their history. He chose certain fathers before them. And rejected others. He chose to have mercy on some and not on others. And now he's going to take it one step further that once again might ruffle some feathers, but it's clear in scripture that this is a reality of what God does. Verse 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for the very, this very purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills and whom he wills he hardens. Now, if you remember the story of Pharaoh, God saying, hey, I raised him up into that position of power ultimately for the purpose that I could show my power through him. Well, how is it that God showed his power through Pharaoh? And what happened 10 times, remember? Pharaoh, Moses comes to Pharaoh, says, let the nation of Israel go. And Pharaoh hardens his heart and says, no, I'm not going to do it. And so God says, fine, I'm going to send a plague. And that plague is going to just demonstrate my power. Once again, Moses comes, let him go. No, okay, plague two, plague three, plague four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, finally the last one, the firstborns are dead. But the reality is God was able to show his power and we're told later on that all the other nations around there feared God for what he did there in Egypt and the power that he clearly displayed, which ultimately came through a hard-hearted Pharaoh. Now, What we're told here is that God has mercy on some, which we've just looked at, but also he hardens some for his own glory. Now, this is the thing that we don't like. Well, wait a second. God hardens people. Well, the Bible clearly says that God did harden the heart of Pharaoh. But before you have too much of an issue with that, understand that Pharaoh hardened his own heart ten times. Okay? So, Ten times Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. It's not like God is coming to this light-hearted, good-willed Pharaoh who wants to let the nation of Israel go and saying, ah, no, I'm going to harden your heart and I'm not going to allow you to do it. No, God is ultimately just giving to Pharaoh his own desires. He's a hard-hearted individual. He hardened his heart ten times and God says, and now I'm going to harden your heart even more so that my glory can be displayed for everyone to see as I bring these plagues upon you and people see the power that I have. Leon Morris wrote this, neither here nor anywhere else is God said to harden anyone who has not first hardened himself. So Paul shares with us that God chooses certain men and not others. God chooses to have mercy on some and not others. And God chooses to harden some and not others. Now, after hearing this, the question that some might ask is, does the sovereignty of God, the right of God to choose, relieve man of his responsibility. Well, Paul's going to deal with that next in verses 19 through 21. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has rejected his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing form say to the thing who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So Paul imagines someone saying, okay, if it's all a matter of God's choice, then how can God find fault with me? How can anyone go against God's choice? Now, Paul could have used many different arguments for this thought, this question, but he chooses this one, which is an interesting one. He says, indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Ultimately, Paul is saying, you know what, how disrespectful for the Creation to respond to the creator in this way. If God says he chooses and God also says we are responsible, who are we to say anything else? Who are we to have an issue with that? Does the potter have power over the clay? Yes, he does. From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Does God have the same right of creation, over creation, like any creator does? Absolutely he does. He is the creator. He is the sovereign one in complete control. And so who are us, the clay, to say, hey, wait a second. You can't do this. You can't choose this. You can't whatever. No, God is in control, not us. Now, Paul continues this thought by saying, doesn't God have the right to glorify himself as he sees fit in verses 23 through 24? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Paul reiterates some important truths here about, okay, if God wants to receive glory in different ways, isn't he fully within his rights to do it. If he wants to glorify himself by saying, you know what, I'm going to let you continue in your sinful ways that you have chosen to do, that you were born in, that you're continuing in, and I'm going to judge you for it, to show my power. Isn't he within his rights to say, you know what, you're a sinful person, and now I'm going to judge you. Just like the police officer could say, hey, you broke the law, you're going to get a ticket. God's totally within his rights to say, I'll show my justice, I'll show my power, my authority in judging sinful people. But he's also fully within his right to say, you know what? But for that sinful person, I'm going to pour mercy on them. I'm going to give them what they don't deserve. I'm going to be gracious to them. And you know what? I'm going to show my love and my grace and my mercy and my authority in that as well. Isn't he not just in both ways to punish sinful people and to be gracious to sinful people? And so Paul is kind of bringing out that, you know, God's just in both ways. But now he's really bringing it to the, the, the point that he's ultimately trying to make. It's like, well, why are you going back through Israel's history? Why are you bringing up all of these sovereign choices of God? It's all leading to something here because Paul knows what I'm going to conclude with. Most Jews do not want to hear this answer. And so before just jumping straight into it and saying, hey, God has chosen this certain group of people to reach with the gospel. I'm going to remind you of your history of how God has made different choices that show his complete sovereignty to choose, to have mercy on whom he will, to choose whom he will, to harden whom he will. And so hopefully now that as I share this group that he is choosing, you won't be like, well, God can't do that. Sure he can. Because now he's got to his ultimate point. God has not only chosen the nation of Israel to be his people, guess what? God is now choosing to reach a new group that for most Jews, they never wanted anything to do with. They didn't think God had had any heart for. And Paul is helping them see it's not for Jews only. Salvation goes to another group, the Gentiles as well. Verse 24, even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. This would be for the Jewish ear something that says, oh, wait a second. You can't say that. How could God do that? Surely he wouldn't choose to do that for these pagan Gentiles. And Paul's saying, yes, he has. He's chosen them. And it's a wonderful thing for us who are Gentiles in this room that God made that sovereign choice to say, it's not just for you Jews. Jesus didn't just die for you. He died for the world. He died for Gentiles as well. And what a wonderful, wonderful thing for us. Paul's now going to reveal, hey, you should already have known this because the Old Testament told you it was going to happen. Verses 25 and 26. As he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was told, where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Back in Hosea, he clearly reveals that, hey, God was going to call himself a people who were not his people. Speaking of, my people now are Israel, and I'm going to call another people. Speaking of the the, non-Israel, the Gentiles. So Hosea was making clear, in the future, this is something that God's going to do. And so Paul's saying, you know, this shouldn't be like a shock. You know, hey, the Old Testament actually told you God was going to do this. That he was going to call another people, not just Jews. But the Old Testament also reveals that God has a remnant in Israel that he's always saved. And this is important because remember, there is a remnant right now. You have Paul and you have, you know, the apostles and you have the early church had a lot of Jews, but now as the church has grown, it's majority Gentile. And for the most part, the nation of Israel is rejecting God. But now Paul's saying, hey, there's always been this remnant. That is believed. There's always been a remnant that God has saved, and He wants to remind them of that in the Old Testament. And Isaiah reveals that to us, uh, chapter uh, verses 27 through 29. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, for He will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And Isaiah, and as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath. Had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been like made like Gomorrah. Isaiah brings out, you know what, if you look through the nation of Israel, and for the most part they had wicked kings that led them in idolatry and away from God, if God didn't have a remnant, he would have wiped them all out, just like he wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah. If God didn't have a remnant that he always kept faithful to him throughout Israel's time, then as a nation, they would have all just rejected him. But God has always had that. If you remember Elisha, he's running from Jezebel and he's sitting there. I'm the only person that still worships and loves you. And God says, no, I got thousands more. I got my remnant. I always do. I have it here in the nation of Israel. And Paul is reminding them of that because the question is, is God done with them? They say, no, they're still a remnant. And the remnant brings you hope of the future. Because remember, chapter 11 is going to deal with the future of how God's going to restore and bring Israel back to a knowledge of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. But right now, there's just that remnant. It's just waiting. And so often, that's what it was. All right, there's a remnant, but now God's going to bring His people back to Israel, bring them after they've gone into captivity. But that remnant is always who God held on to before He did a great work. And that great work's coming, and the remnant exists. But as you look at Israel now, and you think, well, there's not many who believe in Him. True. But there are some, and Paul is reminding them of this wonderful truth for the hope of the future. But now he's going to end this chapter with an important question. Okay, well, why is it that the Gentiles have attained righteousness? I mean, come on, they're Gentiles, Paul, and us Jews have not. Well, why is God giving to them this mercy, and it seems like he's rejecting us? Well, what's going on here? Well, he answers it pretty clearly in verses 30 through 33. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Why have the Gentiles received this righteousness and the Jews not for the most part? Well, Paul says, the Gentiles attain righteousness because they put their faith in Jesus. The Jews have not. Why? Because they won't put their faith in Jesus. Instead, they are relying upon the works of the law. And this is what chapters 1-8 through have been dealing with in great detail. They won't accept the reality that there's only one way to be saved through Jesus. They rejected Him, the Messiah. The Gentiles are received. They're given this mercy of God. Why? Because they put their faith in Jesus. The Jews, for the most part, are being rejected. Why? Because they're rejecting the one way to salvation, Jesus Christ. And so Paul is kind of bringing it together here. And then he uh, quotes an Old Testament passage. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The stumbling stone is Jesus. And as the Jews come, they're stumbling over him because they don't accept him as their Messiah. He's a rock of offense to them. They were so offended, they crucified Him. They don't want Him. They're rejecting Him. But He's the only way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Me. And you've rejected Me. And so, that's why you're not in the relationship with God that you think. That's why you're not saved. That's why all these things, your heritage and the law and stuff, hey, no, you've rejected the Messiah. And that's why you are where you are at right now. God in his sovereignty, chose that he would send Jesus to die. He would send the Messiah. But fortunately for us, it wasn't just, hey, I'm only going to do it for the nation of Israel. Because the sacrificial system, you know, for the most part, that was just dealing with Israel's sin. And God says, you know what, I have a lamb that I'm going to send, Jesus Christ, that's going to die not just for Israel, but for the Gentile world as well. You know, when we look at the sovereignty of God, and I know there's you know different camps that debate things. You know, for me, it ultimately comes down to this should bring comfort that God loves you, He's chosen you. You know, and when we think of well, who do I want to be in control? Who do I want to be full authority? Do what He wants to choose right or wrong, whatever it is. Who do I want in that position? Well, hopefully, the more we get to know God, we have no issue with Him being that guy. You know, when my, early on in my Christian life, I read some of these things, and I struggle with some thoughts, but as I've grown in my understanding of who God is, I don't struggle with it anymore, because it's like, you know what, God, I know who you are. I know your love. I know your justice. I know your holiness. I know how you work. I have no issue with you being in full control, and even when you make decisions that I have no concept of, I have no issue with that, because, come on, I am so, you know... Dumb compared to your knowledge and all you have. I'm never going to understand all that you do. But what I can understand is that you are perfect and sinless and holy and loving and righteous. And I can trust that you will make the best decisions, period. And so when I look at God's sovereignty and his control and his decision making over all creation, I'm excited about it. I'm happy with it. I surely wouldn't want me or you in that position. Then I'd be fearful. But God in that role, hey, I don't have an issue with that at all. And what I do look at is say, hey, God, you chose me. You loved me. You sacrificed yourself for me. And that makes me very blessed. And So hopefully as you look at the sovereignty of God, you're encouraged by his control and encouraged by his choice for you. And I want to close this morning as we do the first Sunday of every month, remembering ultimately what these choices led to. God said, I'm going to sacrifice my son for you because I love you. And So we're going to take time this morning just to remember that sacrifice, to remember that God chose to do this. As Jesus was in that garden, if there's any other way, let this cup pass, but not my will, but yours. I'm making a choice to do this. Jesus says, no one forced me up on that cross. I willingly choose to lay my life down. No one took it from me. I gave it. I gave it for you because I love you. And so I want us to remember the choices of God, the ones that he wants us to look back upon and say, don't forget what I chose to do for you and the love that it demonstrates to you. Can I have the worship team come on up? And we're going to have the communion elements passed around as the worship team sings a song. And I just encourage you to hold on to those and I'll come back up and we'll take those elements together.